Thank you so much, Steve. I'll ask Andy and Mike, uh, and the two Mikes, to have available sheets. If any of you did not get them for the study, raise your hand, and we'll be delighted to see that you receive them. Last time we were together, we discovered that the life setting of the Gospel of Mark was nothing less than an oppressed and persecuted church. Because you and I live in such comfortable circumstances, it's very easy for us to distance ourselves from that church. But after our meeting last Wednesday, one of our younger men who is working in a camp with some 60,000 refugees in the Sudan came and spoke with me. He said Christians are being set on fire. Others are being dumped down wells. Children are being sold and women being sold into slavery. Planes have waited until Christians are gathered in assemblies like this so that when they bomb the churches, they'll be certain to take out most of the congregation. He lives with that day in and day out. And I wasn't surprised at that report, because Brenda and I made a friend when we were in Amsterdam who worked for the United Nations in the Sudan for a number of years. The things she saw, the things she experienced, were horrific. You and I need to know that the martyr church exists very much in the world today. And there are no warrants, no guarantees that we will not participate in the experience of the martyr church. I therefore call your attention to the sheets that you've picked up for tonight, and let's just review a bit and then advance. We suggested at the end of our session last Wednesday that the setting in life for Mark was nothing less than the oppression and persecution of the church following the great fire of Rome. I describe Mark as a pamphlet for hard times. It addresses a church, which is the object of imperial persecution following that fire. Now, when we talk about the occasion of a document, we're asking the question, why was this particular document, why was this gospel published at this moment in time? And of course it flows right out of the life setting. The oppression of the Emperor Nero and the crisis of martyrdom. I believe that there are two basic purposes to the Gospel of Mark. And I've set them out for you. To strengthen Christians and provide them with a basis for faithfulness to Jesus at a time when Christian identity poses the threat of arrest and a humiliating death. 
We saw evidence of that in 1 Peter. Where you remember, 1 Peter falls into two uneven parts. From 1.1 to 4.11, the mood is caught by the words, you may have to suffer various trials. But suddenly, in 4.12, Peter pens the words, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you. I believe that's a hastily written postscript. A P.S. It's begun. And we saw how if you suffer as a Christian, you are not to be ashamed, but to glorify God under that name. And as Peter traces the experience of the brothers and sisters with whom he is and with whom he is sharing these experiences, he recognizes, although it was Nero and the imperial police that were the instruments of martyrdom, it was really demonic, an attempt to destroy the church. And so he spoke of the devil as a roaring lion looking about for someone to devour. But the assurance God gave through his Holy Spirit was after you have suffered for a while, God will strengthen you, will renew you, will restore you to the praise of his glory. And we found the key in 1 Peter 5.13, where we find the statement, She who is at Babylon sends her greetings, and so does my son Mark. We saw that she was a reference to the church. You'll find the same kind of reference in 2 John and 3 John to the elect lady. Babylon, a code word for Rome. Remember in the book of Revelation, Babylon sits on seven hills. Rome was the city built on the seven hills. And Babylon is not holy, and Babylon is not home. And the people of God were once again in exile, in captivity in Babylon. And the reference to Mark, Mark is with Peter when this crisis breaks out. And the Spirit of God lays upon his heart the responsibility to be helpful to men and women like ourselves in that crisis of identification and of martyrdom. Now what was the church like in Rome? Do you know that in Franklin there are over 100 churches? Many are very small congregations, pastored by bivocational pastors, many of them working at the Saturn plant. The group of pastors with whom Mike and I and Scott Rowley and some others are meeting every Thursday will frequently remember these pastors. We're very conscious of the fact that we have a responsibility for our city and that many in the ministry are exhausted and discouraged. To have access to a congregation that's gathered here this size this evening 
would be the biggest shot in the arm for many of them. We are a large congregation. There's no building large enough to accommodate us if we were to all come together at one time. The Lord's Day demonstrates that. But what was the church in Rome like? Imagine that you are part of a small Jesus movement in a city of a million and a half people. You've been drawn to Rome because there's employment there. There's work. But you've left family, you've left all of the kinship relationships that you had back in your small town or your village, and suddenly you're a very anonymous person. That can happen even in this congregation. If it were not for persons who took the initiative to come to Brenda and I almost from the first time we were within the congregation, introduce themselves, welcome us, tell us a bit about themselves, inquire about us. We could have known that same anonymity. Now, sometimes we want to be anonymous. We don't want to be exposed because we're going through difficult things. And we're afraid if you discover what those difficult things are, you will push us away and want nothing to do with us. But I can assure you, if you are anonymous and no one knows your name, and you have no supports from family, your experience can become very lonely and eroding of character, eroding of perspectives, of vision, eroding of all of the things that shaped you in terms of your own commitments. The wonderful thing about the house church in Rome at a time where Christians didn't have a building of any size, they simply were no churches until about the 3rd or 4th century, no church buildings. But groups of Christians gathered in homes. And the wonderful thing about that was that in a home, there was identity and there was intimacy. And suddenly, everyone knew your name. Andy, it's good to see you. Michael, how wonderful to have you here. Trey, great to see you. Mark, Brenda, Edie can go right down the line, Angela, Pete. You know, when I know your name, I'm not only willing to laugh in your presence, I'm willing to cry in your presence, to tell you what it is I'm laboring under, my fears, my discouragements, who I really am. Now, we know something about the size of homes in antiquity in the first century. We know that even the wealthy did not have a home that could accommodate more than 35 people. So all of the congregations were small. Now, Gaius is mentioned in Romans 16.23 as having been Paul's host in Corinth. 
And Paul says, and he was the host of the whole church. He must have had a remarkably large villa. But for most of us, we wouldn't have lived in homes at all. We would have lived in tenements, where the bottom floor was given to shops. The owners of the shops would have taken the second floor. Perhaps we would live there. As you go higher, there is no ventilation except a little bit of window. All of the noises of the streets come on. Most of us would have lived in the third and the fourth story. But there was Clyde and his wife, and they had a second-floor apartment. And they invited us to come and to be part of their home. And they were so generous, they provided the common meal. And so some 20 to 35 of us would gather in their apartment. Now, maybe in Rome at this time, the number of persons we have here tonight would represent all of the Christians. A loose network of house churches and tenement churches with responsibility for a city of a million and a half. Do we take responsibility for a city of 29,000? For a county of 60,000? Read Romans 16. And you'll find that in Rome, Paul addresses some five different house churches. He puts his seal of approval, as it were, on the leadership of some 26 people, men and women. He appreciates them all. One of the oldest of the house churches was that to which Priscilla and Aquila gave leadership. First in Rome, then in Ephesus, Corinth, and now back in Rome. So that's the situation. A loose network. I belong to the house church to which Clyde and his wife give leadership. Michael belongs to a house church to which Mike and Rinda give leadership. We might not spend very much time ever with one another. And all of a sudden, the word begins to go from house church to house church about what's happening to Christians. That's the situation that calls the Gospel of Mark into being. What I have found is that it's very helpful in biblical studies to listen to the structure of a letter or the structure of the apocalypse or the structure of a gospel. And that's not something that we often pay attention to. Listening to the structure simply means we're going to take the canonical document and we're going to see it as a whole we're going to recognize that this document was birthed in crisis. And I want you to put yourself tonight in the position of Mark. We few Christians in that city of a million and a half 
are frightened. I may not be frightened for myself, but what about my wife? What about my granddaughter? What about the children of my friends? What about my son? How are you going to put backbone into the men and women who make up these house churches? That was the challenge of Mark. And Mark met that challenge as the Spirit of God worked upon his heart by giving to his gospel what I call a confessional structure. A confessional structure. What do I mean by that? The opening line of the Gospel of Mark is the beginning of the Gospel concerning Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. To call Jesus the Messiah is to make a confession of your identification with Jesus as God's anointed agent of salvation. To call Jesus the Son of God is to recognize that he came to do the will of God. He came where he was impelled by the will of God. And God's will is the only explanation for his coming and identification with us. The confessing church is the church that we see particularly when the children are brought for baptism. Scotty says to them, to the parents, I want to ask you a couple of pointed questions. Do you acknowledge Jesus is your Lord? Do you acknowledge your absolute dependence upon him? That's a confession. Mark identifies himself in his opening line with the confessing church. Now that expression, the confessing church, is well known to those of us who are older because it was the church to which Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Niemöller and some of the other of the outstanding evangelical pastors of the 30s and the 40s in Germany gave to the church that resisted National Socialism and stood up to the Nazi war machine. And almost every one of them was forced to go underground and ultimately was put to death. The confessing church unashamedly identifies itself with Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. But I believe that opening line of Mark is doing something else. Mark is telling you, I'm going to tell you the story of Jesus, and I'm going to do it in two parts. In the first half of the story, I'm going to lead you to the point where the confession is made, Jesus is the Messiah. A confession that's already anticipated in the opening line of Mark. In the second part of the story, I'm going to lead you to the point where the confession is made, surely this man was Son of God. And that's what I mean to indicate by the little chart that you have toward the bottom 
of your page. Notice the second time I've listed Mark 1.1, Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Let's just take a quick run through that first half by no means covering it in any detail at all. You remember, and I see I've given you a wrong reference, 431 should be 435. Yeah. Score one for whoever it was who was uh, responsible for my saying 431. <laughs> but you remember the incident. Jesus has ministered all day. It's Mark 441. Is that what it is? Yeah, I think so. 441. It begins with uh, 435. Yes. Jesus has ministered all day. And he's exhausted. He asked the disciples to push the boat out onto the Lake of Galilee, and he promptly falls asleep in the stern of the boat on the coxswain's pillow. A great storm comes up, and professional seamen are terrified. They believe that they're going to drown. They rudely awake Jesus, and they say, Teacher, Master, is it of no concern to you? We're going to die. And Jesus stands up in the boat and he says, Be muzzled. Be quiet. And suddenly the wind falls and the lake is calm. And he turns to his disciples and says, Have you no faith? Now, the incident in 441, that's what it should read, 441, the incident ends on this note. Who is this that even the winds and the waves obey his voice? Mark doesn't have to answer that question for you because he's already done so in the opening line. This is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. Or take another incident. It's Mark seven thirty one to 37. There is a man who has a miserable existence. He cannot hear, and he has a speech impediment so severe that it is almost impossible to understand what he is saying. His friends bring him to Jesus, and Jesus takes him aside, and focuses the man's attention upon himself. That that man might know his healing, his salvation, is going to come from Jesus. Puts his hands in the man's ears. Takes his spittle, puts it on the man's tongue, and says, Ephrathah, be open." And suddenly the man can hear clearly. And he can speak clearly. And 737 says, Why, he has done everything well. And what he did with one is pluralized, as it were. 
He makes the dumb to speak. He makes the deaf to hear. Fulfilling the great prophecy of Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Now to say he has done everything well is to make a confession. And it prepares us for that incident in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus takes the initiative and says, Who do men say that I am? Now Caesarea Philippi, for many of us, of course, is just a name. I've been there. Very little archaeological work has been done. It's not impressive now. You see a few columns, some building stone. There's a stream that runs through it. But Caesarea Philippi was the capital of the district over which Herod Philip gave leadership. It was entirely pagan territory. It is a very impressive location because there's Mount Hermon. And the waters of the melting snows of Mount Hermon come out from the base of the mountain and continually feed that very cold stream. It's a wonderful location, but it is entirely pagan. I think that's deliberate. Jesus leads his disciples into pagan territory, and he says, he takes the initiative, who do men say that I am? Well, you know the answers they give. You're a prophet. Some say you're a recent prophet, John the Baptist. Others say you're one of the old prophets, like Elijah or Jeremiah. But essentially, the answers are the same. You're a prophet. It's a good answer. Not fully adequate. But it's not bad. But then Jesus turns and says, Who do you say that I am? And Peter, a Jew, the representative of all of Israel, as it were, says, You are the Messiah. Boom! Jesus says, Don't tell anyone. And we'll see the reason for that in just a moment. But that's the end to the first half of the story. It ends on the climactic announcement, you are the Messiah, an announcement, a confession that was made already in the opening line of the gospel. Now what about the second half of the gospel? Jesus begins to tell them what it means to say Messiah. And his disciples are not at all pleased with what he has to say. He begins to talk about rejection. He begins to talk about suffering. He begins to talk about humiliation. He begins to talk about death and vindication only by the action of God, resurrection the third day. And you remember, Peter takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, what you need to know is that in the first century, if Clyde was giving pastoral leadership to us, we wouldn't face him as we do on the Lord's Day morning or when Scotty teaches us. We wouldn't face them like you're facing me. We would be behind him, teaching 
was done as the teacher walked ahead and talked and his disciples followed behind. What does it take for me to be able to rebuke Clyde? I have to come from behind him to face him. In other words, I leave the place of the disciple and assume the role of the teacher. And Jesus says, you're not yet ready for that. Get behind me. <laughs> now, so you remember the disciples were not at all pleased with what Jesus had to say about a suffering, rejected, dying Messiah. But the second half of the gospel comes to a conclusion when Jesus is on the cross. Now, crucifixion was death by exhaustion. Staying on the cross for two or three days alive was not at all unusual. So when Jesus was six hours on the cross, and suddenly with a loud cry he released his spirit, the centurion in charge of the death squad, who knew all about crucifixion, knew something very unusual had taken place. You see, in crucifixion, you don't die with a loud cry. You die with a hoarse whisper, if you can speak at all. And when he saw the manner in which Jesus died in strength, he was forced to acknowledge surely this man was the Son of God. Now, he may not have meant what Mark meant when he said Son of God. But nevertheless, as a representative of the pagan world, as a representative of the Gentile world, he had to acknowledge the dignity of Jesus. An acknowledgement that already is anticipated in the opening line of Mark's Gospel. You see why I say the Spirit of God led Mark to tell the story of Jesus in a confessional framework. Why? because he wants you to stand with the confessing church. He wants you to identify yourself, cost what it will, with the people of God who know the new covenant has been inaugurated, that God has graciously met us in our brokenness and identified himself in solidarity with us. Will you stand with the confessing church? In Franklin? Of course. It's so easy. But what about in the Sudan? What about in mainland China? What about in Indonesia, one of the most Muslim-oriented governments in the world? What about in Albania, where until a few years ago, possession of a Bible was a token of death? Will you identify with the confessing church? Mark calls his Christians to do precisely that. So Mark's pastoral concern was clearly that Christians boldly identify 
with the confessing church and the witness of Tacitus, as we saw last Wednesday, was that Christians were stubborn. They refused to relinquish their Christian identity. They refused to accept an easy dismissal of the charges against it. Now, one who spoke to me last Wednesday said she had been reading in the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's a wonderful story. It's about a very old pastor, late 80s, early 90s, who on the emperor's birthday, when the Christians knew there would be trouble in the city of Smyrna, because it was always a great pagan festival, they had persuaded their old pastor to go out to a farm where he gave himself in prayer. Many Christians were put into the arena to face the wild animals, the lions, the bears, the bulls. But as the sun began to go down, the people grew tired of it all. And they began to chant, We want Polycarp. We want Polycarp. It'd be like all of those who do not know Christ in Franklin coming together. We want Scotty Smith. We want Clyde Godwin. We want Scott Rowley. We want Mike Card. We want Mike Smith. We want Kevin Quitt and so on. We want Polycarp. A couple of Christian slaves were tortured and they secured the information where he was and they found this old man in prayer. He was brought before the magistrate who had never seen him before and he was deeply moved by the venerable age of this man. And the magistrate felt sympathy for it. He said, I want to let you go. All you have to do is to say, away with the atheists and I'll let you go. You see, pagans called Christians atheoi because they didn't make concrete representations of their God. And Polycarp looked at those stands filled with chanting uh, pagans and with a wave of his hand said, Away with the atheist! And the magistrate understood he had, magistrate understood he had not quite complied with his request. <laughs> said, I'm going to give you another chance. He took off his ring. Said, I'm going to simply drop my ring. All you have to do is bend down and pick it up and hand it to me and I'll let you go. Polycarp knew that all those in the stands would believe he was bowing in obeisance to the magistrate in the spirit of the emperor and he stood erect. The magistrate lost his patience. He said, look, I've had it. Will you deny Christ or won't you? And Polycarp gave that magnificent word, Eighty and six years have I served my Lord. He never denied me once. How can I deny him now? 
The story goes on to tell how it was too late to bring out the lion. And so they took this old man and bound him to the stake and people came out of the stands and they gathered pieces of wood and they piled it up and it was set on fire. And Polycarp entered into the presence of the Lord. Now everyone knows that story. But not everyone remembers that the martyrdom of Polycarp also mentions a certain kinship. Now, why do we remember Polycarp and we've forgotten all about Quintus? Because the writer of that martyrdom says, but Quintus played the coward and accepted relief. The story is about standing with the confessing church. Now, we've got to move quickly. Notice the point that I make under 3A. And I'm going back now to the fact that Jesus, after the confession of Peter, you are the Messiah, immediately begins to define what Messiah means by speaking of the Son of Man, who must experience rejection, suffering, being put to death on the third day. I don't know anybody else who uses this descriptive term a fluid term. But when I say Messiah is a fluid term, what I want to say is that just as a fluid will take the shape of its container, pour it into a beaker, it takes the shape of the beaker. Pour it into a test tube, takes the shape of a test tube. Messiah was a term that covered a broad variety of hopes and dreams. Now, the disciples had their hopes and dreams. They remembered perhaps Daniel 7, 13 and 14, about the vision of the one like a son of man, to whom there was given a kingdom that would never pass away. That's who they wanted Jesus to be, the great king. But when Jesus says, the Son of Man must suffer rejection, suffering, and death, must endure, behind the must stands the sovereign will of God. There was no other way we could be redeemed. And Jesus will not permit the disciples, nor will he permit us, to fill the term Messiah with our hopes and dreams. He came to be God's anointed agent, God's Messiah. And what God intended was that Jesus should take upon himself the full weight of the sin of the world, your sin, my sin. Mark knows that. So in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus insists that he has come to be God's anointed one, the agent of God's salvation in submission to the will of God. He will be vindicated, he insists, by resurrection on the third day. Now, the little chart that I've placed here for you is something you can 
you can look at very carefully for yourself. I'm not going to take the time to do it. But three times, Jesus leads the disciples to recognize their own misunderstanding and to hear the call to true discipleship. And you'll notice if you follow down that this happens in chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10. And it's relatively easy to remember these prophecies of Jesus' suffering because it's 831, 931, 10, 33, and 34, the fullest, and the most fleshed out one. Every time Jesus speaks of what must be his experience, the disciples' evidence misunderstanding. Peter takes Jesus aside and rebukes him. So, 8.32.33. In 9.32 it says, but they did not understand what he was saying. And in 10.35-41, Jesus has talked about spitting. He has talked about the, the flagellation. He has talked about terrible humiliation. And James and John come to him and say, we want to sit on your right and on your left when you come into your glory. They were like us. They heard selectively. They heard we're going to Jerusalem and they stopped listening. Jerusalem, the city of the great king, he's going to be crowned. It never occurred to them that the place on the left, place on the right was occupied by a Roman cross. And in each instance, Jesus calls them to true discipleship. In chapter 8, it is the call to cross-bearing. In chapter 9, it is the call to servanthood. And in chapter 10, 42 to 45, servanthood is defined in terms of being offered up as a ransom for the many. And what's so interesting about Mark's sensitivity is that in the Gospel of Mark, cross and resurrection are seen as they relate to the suffering and humiliation of Christians. Because if they have done this to Jesus, why do you believe they will not do that to you? I have to tell a story on myself. I was teaching at Western Kentucky University, one of the close by great secular universities where Mike Card, Mike Smith, or my students, John Eve, is a great place to be. And at graduation every year, they would give a silver bowl to the outstanding teacher in the faculty of over 700, and then another silver bowl to the outstanding researcher among that faculty. So two silver bowls, and I wanted a silver bowl for myself. <laughs> now, God is so good in giving us mates. Brenda said to me, did Jesus ever have a silver bowl? <laughs> and one time, she came home from shopping and she had bought a large hammered aluminum fruit bowl and she said, Bill, I present you with your silver bowl. <laughs> now, I did earn a silver bowl in 1984. 
and it sits in Brenda's china cabinet, and she has to polish it. I never look at it. It doesn't mean a thing. But isn't it funny how we want privileges for ourselves that Jesus himself never enjoyed? When you go to the golf course next and you're asking, is there a clergy discount? You might think about that. <laughs> That's where the Bible teacher stops preaching and begins to meddle. <laughs> All right. In ten minutes, turn, if you will, to the prologue, Mark 1, 1 to 13. And the first question that I pose for us is, what is the length of the prologue? Is it 1, 1 to 13, or 1, 1 to 15? Because if you turn to the commentaries that are on a good biblical library shelf, you'll find that there is no general agreement about that. We can answer that question quickly. After that opening line, the beginning of the apostolic preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, you have a little unit of two verses where texts from the Old Testament are brought together, and the key theme is the voice of one calling in the wilderness or in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. We're introduced to the wilderness theme in those two verses. The next unit is 1, 4 through 8. It's about John the Baptist. And we read, and so John came baptizing in the wilderness, or as the NIV says, in the desert region. And John is described as a man of the wilderness. He wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and he ate what wilderness nomads eat. Locust. Now when you hear locust, we might think of those brown grasshoppers that are about... No, 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 no. John ate locusts that were about six inches long with honey. <laughs> Wouldn't that make it palatable? <laughs> But John is clearly a man of the wilderness. So the first unit of 2 and 3 is tied to four, uh, through verses 4 through 8 by the wilderness theme. Now we're told that the people came and they were baptized by John in the Jordan River. So the Jordan is part of the wilderness. 9 through 11 is the next unit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. So Jesus was baptized in the wilderness. And then verse 12, that once the Spirit sent him even deeper into the wilderness or the desert. Then we have 114. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Oh, excuse me. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. We turn from the wilderness to Galilee. 1, 14 and 15 belongs with the unit that follows, not part of the prologue. So the prologue is 1, 1 through 
13. Now, the function or the purpose of the prologue is to introduce us to the two central figures in the Gospel of Mark. There is the figure of God's messenger, who is clearly John. And there is the figure of the Lord, picking up the language of that biblical text. I will send my messenger ahead of you. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. And then the importance of the wilderness. A voice of one calling in the wilderness or in the desert. Now that unit about John is very brief. But it makes it clear he was the man of the wilderness whose preaching and action in baptizing Jews was so new it earned for John the name the baptizer. And what's interesting is we read in verse 5 the whole Judean countryside, that is the whole of the holy province, and all the people of Jerusalem, the people of the holy city, went out to John confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River, but there's no indication that anything significant happened. As opposed to all Judea and all of Jerusalem were introduced to only one Galilean, Galilee of the Gentiles, Galilee, where pagan values seem to dominate. And the small city in Galilee, Nazareth, or was it Franklin? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Can any good thing come out of Franklin? And the one comes, and he is baptized by John in the Jordan. Now Mark has deliberately put 1, 5, and 1, 9 in parallel. And I want you to see the parallelism. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to John, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. 1, 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. What is missing? confessing his sin. There was no need for confession on the part of Jesus. What is Mark's distinctive understanding of Jesus and the gospel? It's capitalized for you in verse 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent Jesus deeper into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. A very unusual account of the temptation. No reference to turning stones into bread, leaping from the pinnacle of the temple, or receiving the adoration of the nations in exchange for adoring Satan. What's this all about? 
there is a theme in the prophets. Hosea, Jeremiah, Isaiah, that we call the second Exodus theme. It runs like this. God is going to call his people back into the wilderness and there he's going to enter into judgment with them. And sonship, daughtership, will be renewed in the wilderness and then God will lead his people back to be the true people of God. John makes his appearance in the wilderness and the place where he appears is as significant as the message that he declares. The people are being called into the wilderness. But they don't know what that means. But it means that God is ready to enter into judgment with his people. That was what was happening in the church of Rome. And why is it when they go into the waters and they come out of the waters, nothing occurs? Because they don't know what it means to go into the wilderness. But Jesus does. And when he goes into the waters and comes out of the waters, the heavens are torn apart. The Spirit descends upon him like a dove and the voice declares, This is my beloved Son. My pleasure rests upon him. Who is Jesus? The one God has sent to bear the burden of the judgment that should have fallen upon the people. The one who identifies with you and with me and takes the judgment that should have fallen upon us. And the story is going to be of a contest between Jesus who is tested and Satan who opposes the purposes of God and the fact that Jesus will be supported by divine help. But he is with the wild animals. Part of the horror, part of the danger, part of the inhabitable nature of the wilderness. That's Mark. Distinctive. Understand. Let's pray. Our Father, we acknowledge that we don't read the Old Covenant Scriptures in the light of what you sent your Son to be in our midst and to do for us. We don't think in terms of the wilderness, of your entering into judgment with your people, of causing sonship and daughtership to be renewed. But Jesus understood and identified himself with the people of God. And you said, this is now sonship. Submission to my will is sonship. Oh, Lord God, give us a submissive spirit. Teach us to be your sons and daughters, to love you, to love one another, to be nurtured, and to lift up the name of Jesus as the great burden bearer of the judgment of God that should have fallen upon us. We ask this in his powerful and his pure name.
Amen. You are the